The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing our study of 1 John this morning, so let me start by you telling me something that you know about the recipients of this letter. What do we know about the recipients? They were local? <laughs> they were believers, okay? That's important, people. You've got to hang on to that. The intended audience are Christians. Unlike the fourth gospel that John wrote to bring people to faith in Christ. This epistle is written to those who already have trusted in Christ. He's instructing them on how to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. The purpose of this letter is fellowship. Alright? We see that in 1 John 1.3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Yeshua, the Christ. Now, so that you too may have fellowship with us is what's called in the Greek a hina purpose clause. Alright? This is the purpose, so you can have fellowship. The main theme of this epistle is fellowship with God. Now, we see from this letter that fellowship is not an automatic thing. You know, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're walking in fellowship with the Lord. And that needs to be made clear because there are many people who feel, it's just automatic. I'm a Christian, I'll just automatically be in fellowship. No, you won't. If you're not walking in the light, you're not going to be in fellowship. That's what he says in verse 7. If we walk in the light, if, maybe we will, maybe we won't. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Yeshua's Son cleanses us from all sin. So we walk in the light, we have fellowship. Now what does he mean by walking in the light? Well, walking in the light is living up to what God has shown us in His Word as His will. Right, he's given us the Word so we'll know how to live, and if we walk according to it, we're walking in the light. The Word is a light. It is a lamp to our feet, David said. It's walking in obedience to His Word. And believers... We cannot walk in the light if we are not confessing our sins. And that's what he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we talked about the word confess here. It's the Greek word homologeo, which literally means to say the same thing. So confessing, therefore, means saying about your sins what God says about them. God says there's sin, don't you try to make it be something else. Alright, it's sin. Now, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but if you do a comparison between verses 6 and 7, and verses 8 and 9, you'll see that they're talking about the same thing. He shows us that denying our sin is part of what it means to walk in darkness. And confessing our sin is what it means to walk in the light. Because we're in the light, we sin, we're going to confess that. We're going to admit that's wrong. All right. Now, John in this epistle is combating the erroneous teaching and practice of some heretical group. And we don't know for sure what that group is. We know some of their teachings by what he's combating here, but 
He has introduced three sets of claims made by the opponents. Each of these three false claims in verse 6, 8, and 10 is a denial of the truth that immediately precedes it in verse 5, 7, and 9. So they said, the opponents would say, we have fellowship with God, but John says, not while you're walking in darkness, you don't. You're lying. You're not practicing the truth. And those who experience true fellowship with God, they walk in the light as He is light. Now the heretics were saying that they had no sin, and they had not sinned. And John says, you're deceiving yourself, and worse, you're making God a liar. All right? Now, in verse 10, contains the last of the three if-we-say clauses. And we should have done verse 10 several weeks ago, but I just didn't have enough time. All right? So we're going to tack it on with chapter 2, and it kind of fits in here anyway, because he's continuing, this, this thought continues to verse 2 of chapter 2. All right? All right. These third-class conditions here, are the only way we identify the assertions of the false teachers. These if-we-say clauses. That's how we know he's dealing with the false teachers. And they appear to be incipient Gnostics. All right? And verse 10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the heretic's third claim was, we haven't sinned. And this is really the most serious as it puts God's revelation of sin aside, and it really makes man the authority for what's sin and what's not. You decide what's right and wrong. You just say, well, that's not sin. If we say, this is another third class conditional sentence. Here it is not the guilt resulting from sin that's being denied, but a denial of the actual acts of sin. See, the opponents had apparently developed a version of perfectionism by which they were able to deny that they could be convicted of sin. So it must refer to sins committed after a person has professed to be a Christian. They're not saying here, I've never sinned in my whole life. No, they're saying, once I became a Christian, guess what, I got to this place, I don't sin anymore. You know people like that, right? That are sinless? Colin Krauss, in his commentary, writes this, This probably does not mean they claim absolutely to have never sinned. More likely, it means that they claim to have sinned, not sinned, since they came to know God and experienced the anointing. Now, these docetics, these people he is writing against, they were guilty of antinomianism. Now, that word just simply means anti-law. They believed that the spirit was pure, the only pure thing. The flesh really didn't matter because the flesh was corrupt and it was going to be burned up by God someday in judgment. So they just thought, we'll just use the flesh in every way we want. You don't need to obey the law in the physical sense. Because the flesh is evil, so just let it do what it wants. It really doesn't touch who we are, our spirit. So they're committing all sorts of sins while saying, it's not sin. We don't sin. And in doing so, the Bible says, they're making him a liar. Making God a liar. Because the person who will not acknowledge as sin, whatever God calls sin, is calling God a liar. And we got all kinds of people doing that today. That's not sin. You know, whatever it be. You know, same-sex marriage. Well, that's not sin. Abortion. That's not sin. Listen, if God says it is, it is. And He does say it is. And we have to line up with Him. But people have always, you know, it's not just the Gnostics He's fighting that, you know, hold different views or want to say that's not sin. we got people today within the Preterist movement that say, well, since AD 70, the law was done away, and since there's no law, there's no sin. 
And they're calling God a liar. Because we are under the law of Christ. Christ taught us, here's how I want you to live. Here's the principles for life. You are to love one another. And when we fail to do that, we're sinning. Robert Schuller, I'm sure most of you know who he is. He died back in 2015. But he redefined sin to make it something other than what Scripture declares. He said that, the, that to define sin as rebellion against God is shallow and insulting to the human being. It's not rebellion, he says. In saying this, he's making God a liar. All right, Because God says that sin is rebellion. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. And Samuel says, Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is iniquity and idolatry. So, Schuler is wrong. Sin is rebellion against God because God said, here's what I want you to do, don't do, and here's what I want you not to do, just like in Adam and Eve. Eat any tree you want. Eat anything in this garden except. And they did. And that was rebellion against God. You know, God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. Wipe them out. And Saul had a better plan. Okay? Look what God says. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul disobeyed Yahweh. He rebelled against what Yahweh told him because he did what he thought was a better plan. Well, we just took some of these things so we can sacrifice them. You know, we, we need to sacrifice. Samuel says, he says, I've obeyed the Lord. And Samuel says, what's that bleeding of sheep I hear? That doesn't sound like obedience to me. Listen, whenever we go against God's revealed will, it's sin. It's sin. You can call it whatever you want, but God calls it sin. And he says, when we do it, his word is not in us. Now, this phrase parallels 1.8, the end of 1.8 there, where it says, the truth is not in such an individual. And some say that this essentially brands the opponents as unbelievers. They're unbelievers, the word's not in them. But, before we jump there, let's consider that John continues to use first-person pronouns. We and us. He's including himself, all right, in this, just as he's done from verse 5 on. I think Christians could make the claim to sinlessness if they've been taught wrong. Alright? I mean, a lot of people, you understand, a lot of Christians believe the wrong things. Right? About a lot of different things. Why? Because they've been taught wrong. And see, most Christians don't read their Bibles, so they just go by what they hear others say, and so if they're being taught wrong, and they're not in the Word, then they just go along with what they hear. And they could, they could be taught this idea of perfectionism. All right? The Arminian perfectionist movement believed that you could come to a post-conversion experience in which you momentarily became so surrendered. That was their thing. Surrender. Let go and let God. You became so surrendered that you never sinned again. And I, like I said, people, we don't know people that are sinless. I don't know anyone that's sinless. Okay? Um, maybe you do, but... <laughs> 
You know, I think it's a, it's a wrong idea, but if they're taught wrong, they can believe that. And so, they're wrong. So saying His Word is not in us is not necessarily saying they're not Christians, but that the Word is not a controlling force in their life. And the Word will not be a controlling force in your life if you don't spend time in it. Do I harp on that too much? Not for my sake, I don't. I'm going to keep on harping on that because to me, there's nothing greater than I could do to encourage you to be in the Word. Because if you're in the Word, God's going to teach you. Okay. If you're not, you're just going to go by what you hear other people say. And it's really good to have a knowledge of the Word so when someone says something, you can check it out. Say, ah, wait a minute, I know the Bible here says... No, I'm not going for that. Okay. But you can't do that unless you're educated. And the only way you'd be educated is if you read it. And, you know, it'd be nice if you just did away with all your excuses as to why you're not reading, because none of them are any good, you know? I mean, if you love God and you believe God saved you, then let's show Him, I want to know you, Lord. I want to have a relationship with you through your Word. Okay. Quit preaching. Let me get back to teaching here, all right? (laughs) No. Hopefully you can see that this passage that we've been looking at for a bunch of weeks here, 1 John 1, 5 through 10, is fundamental to daily Christian living. In these few verses, the disciple whom Yeshua loved, Lazarus, John Eliezer, has laid down for us the basic principles which underlie a vital walk with God. He's saying, this is how to walk in fellowship. I want you to have fellowship. This is how you do it. Walk in the light. Confess your sins. Don't say that's not sin. Very important stuff. Now, as we come to chapter 2, John turns his attention away from the cessationists. You know, he's been saying, these, there's a group of people, they say this, they say this, and he addresses his readers directly. He says, my little children. Okay? Now, in the Greek, this is the word technion. Alright? Thayer defines technion as first, a little child, because that's the idea. It's, it's a term of endearment. But he also defines it this way. Secondly, he says, in the New Testament, used as a term of kindly address by teachers to their disciples. Okay, so that's out there. This is a, a term of affection that a, a, a teacher would address his disciples, his pupils as. And what's interesting is this is the term that Yeshua used to address his disciples. In John 13, 33, Yeshua says, little children, technion, yet a little while I'm with you, You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I'll say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So he addresses them as technon. Now here is something that I think is interesting. This Greek word technion occurs eight times in the New Testament. It's the only times it's used. Only in the writings of Lazarus. He's the only one to use this term. The affectionate reference occurs once in John, and that's here in John 13, 33 and seven times in 1 John. I don't think that's an accident. Seven times. Number of perfection, number of completion, number of totality. Seven times. I see John here as following Yeshua's lead. He was there. He heard Yeshua call them the little technion, the little children. And so he uses that term now. And listen, I think this reinforces my view that 1 John is written to believers. Alright? Look what he says in 2.12. I am writing to you, Technion, because your sins are forgiven 
That, that's Christians, okay? That's who he's writing to. He's writing to his disciples. So John is writing this epistle to the technion of Yahweh. Now notice what he says is the purpose of his writing. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now up to this point in the letter, John has consistently used the first person plural and self-designations. Now he adopts the first person singular as he addresses his readers directly. I am writing these things to you. And the purpose of writing is this. Don't sin. Does that make sense? What's the purpose of this book? What's the purpose of the book? What did we say earlier? Fellowship. How do you destroy fellowship? Sin. So don't sin. So guess what? You can have fellowship with the Father. You can remain in that fellowship. The implication is that John believes his letter can help keep them from sinning. He says, if you understand these things, these will help you, because that's why I'm writing. He says, I'm writing these things. I would say that these things refers to the message that God is holy in 1.5, and to the importance of walking in the light and not in the darkness in 6-10. through 10. I'm writing these things. We serve a holy God. You need to walk in the light. You need to confess your sins. That, that's how you carry this out of not sinning. Now think about what he is saying here. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, in light of what he said in chapter 1, you kind of almost want to say, what? Because in chapter 1 he says, if we say we have no sin. So we can't say we don't have any sin, or we can't say we have not sinned. So even though we will never reach a point of sinlessness, he says, I'm writing so you won't sin. So you're like, well, we have to say we're sinners because we do sin, but you're telling us not to sin. Okay? The construction that John uses is a construction that suggests that you sin not at all. I'm writing so you guys don't sin at all. Listen, the goal of the believer is not sinning, is living a life of holiness before God. And by God's help, as we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, we seek to sin not at all. You can't do this in your own strength. But if you walk in the Spirit, if you're controlled by the Spirit and allow Him to direct and guide your life, we can do this. We can make progress of not sinning. But that is our goal. And we have to keep that before our eyes all the time. Our goal as a Christian is not to sin just a little bit. It's not to sin at all. Okay? You know... I'm writing so that you may not sin. Wow, that would be discouraging if he stopped there. You know, because that'd be like, oh man, not doing so good. But he goes on and he says, but if anyone does sin, oh, you know it so, so well. All right, this is a third class conditional sentence which speaks of potential action. Uh, I'm writing so you won't, but maybe you will, maybe you won't. But if anyone does sin, you might, you might not. We have an advocate with the Father. Yeshua, Christ, the righteous. You know, I am really glad that he said that. I know the damage that sin brings to a life. I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the life of David. I'm so familiar with the life of David and all the pain that he went through. And I constantly can hear him crying out, Absalom, Absalom! The pain he suffered, he brought on himself. 
Sin is damaging. I know that. I know that sin hurts my fellowship with the Father. I'm well aware of that. I know that we are called not to sin. I know that. And yet, at times I sin. I do. So what happens when we sin? What happens when we do? He says, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua Christ the righteous. We have here is a present active indicative which refers to Yeshua's ongoing intercession as our heavenly advocate. Okay, So he says, we have an advocate. This is from the Greek word parakletos. It's often transliterated paraclete. The word parakletos can have various meanings. It can mean an advocate, an intercessor, a counselor, a protector, supporter. The literal Greek etymology is para, which means to the side of, and kaleo, which means to summon. So you're summoning someone to the side of. It can be interpreted to mean to call somebody to your side to help, to counsel, to protect, to defend. There's no real English equivalent for the Greek word parakletos. Some translate this as counselor. You'll see that in some translations. But that has its problems, I think, because, you know, in our idea, we think of a counselor, you might think of a therapist. All right, that's not the idea here. You know, Yeshua is not your therapist. Come alongside, lay down, let me tell, tell me about how your life's been, all right? Or we could think of this maybe as a camp counselor or as a marriage counselor, all right? That's not the idea here. Um, some have translated helper, and that kind of, I think, gives us the idea of an inferior. He's here to kind of help me out if I need it. This is not how the word was understood when John used it. It has more the sense of a legal counselor. It's someone who acts as an advocate who will present your case, who will represent you before the Father. And that's how you have to think of it. He's an advocate. He's my representative. In secular contexts, parakletos often referred to a legal assistant, a representative in court. Lenski on this ancient word for advocate, says this. Demosthetes used it to de designate the friends of accused who voluntarily step in and personally urge the judge to decide in his favor. So it's someone, you know, we get that idea. He's coming alongside. He's an advocate for me. Advocating for my cause. Now, Pericletos is found only here in 1 John. It's found four times in the Gospel of John. It's found nowhere else in the New Testament, nowhere else in the Septuagint. In the Gospel of John, the word consistently is used of the Holy Spirit. Right? Remember that from our study? Who was to be sent, you know, to be with the disciples on earth when Yeshua returned to the Father. However, in 1 John, parakletos is used of Yeshua Himself and is used in connection with His function in heaven. So, Yeshua said that the Holy Spirit was the advocate, and here John says, Yeshua is the advocate. So who is it? Yes. Alright? Yes. Okay? Look at what Yeshua says. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you. Okay? The word another here is very significant to understand what Yeshua meant here by this promise. The Greek language has two words for another, alas and heteros. 
Alas means something is numerically distinct from its antecedent, but of the same character. We could say another of the same kind. That's alas. Heteros means that two things or people are qualitatively distinct or different in character. This would be another of a different kind. And this is where we get our English word heterosexual, referring to a relationship between two people of the opposite sex. So we see this word heteros used in uh, Galatians 1.6. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a heteros gospel, a different gospel. But the word Yeshua uses in 14.6 means another of the same kind. Alas parakletos. Another paraclete of the same kind. Alright? And that's really clear when you look at 1 John 2 where he says, I'm going to send you another parakletos. Now he says, I'm the parakletos. So, since Yeshua is Yahweh, we've established that firmly through the study of John, He's equal to Yahweh the Father. And since the Holy Spirit is another just like Yeshua, what's that tell us about the Holy Spirit? He's Yahweh. Okay, He is Yahweh. The New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is a divine person. And Yeshua said, I'm going to send you another exactly like me. Another member of the Trinity. All right? So in 1 John, Paracletos is used of Yeshua and is used in connection with this function in heaven. Now, so he says, listen, I don't want you to sin, okay? I write to you that you sin not. But, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. we got somebody in heaven with the Father pleading our case. So, when you do sin, how do you view Yeshua when you fall into sin? How do you think of him? Do you think of him with a great big stick ready to beat the snot out of you because you messed up? John says he is our parakletos, our representative before the Father. See, the concept of Yeshua's intercession on our behalf is taught throughout the Scripture. He's for us. Alright? He is for us. Look at uh, Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Yeshua is the one who died. All right? But who's going to condemn you? Christ died to pay for our sin debt. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who intercede, who indeed is interceding for us. All right? He's interceding on our behalf. He goes to the Father, Father, that's covered. What they just did, that's covered. I took care of that. All right? I got that. Look at Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yeshua, our advocate, is not to be thought of as pleading our cause in the presence of a reluctant God, but as a throned king priest asking what he will from the Father who always grants his requests. As our advocate, Yeshua comes alongside at the very moment of our falling. And He doesn't hit us. He doesn't knock us down again. He doesn't try to keep us down. He comes to help us in our time of need. He doesn't condemn us. 
There's nothing for Him to condemn us for because we stand righteous in His presence. He calls Him Yeshua Christ the Righteous. Righteous here is the chaos. It's found four times in this letter. And in each case, the term is related to righteous behavior. And this would seem to be used in, in the present context that way too. It indicates the one who has acted righteously now stands in the presence of the Father to speak on behalf of those who are acting unrighteously. He's speaking for us. To be righteous, Yeshua had to be obedient to the Father. A lamb, unblemished and spotless. Peter puts it this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That Passover lamb had to be perfect. No spots, no blemishes. And Christ is our Passover, Paul tells us. He was sacrificed for us. So if he had sinned, if Christ had sinned, he'd have to die for his own sins. He couldn't die for ours. But he fully kept God's law in dependence on the Father. His righteousness is freely imputed to the one who trusts him. Paul wrote this. Love this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. He didn't know sin, but He became sin for us. Why? So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. People, Christ bore our sin, gave us His righteousness. That's the only way anybody will ever get into heaven is by having the righteousness of Christ. Your own righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah says. It'll get you nowhere. Now, here's what's interesting. This characterization of righteousness that is used of Yeshua in 2.1 here was just used of the Father in 1 John 1.9. He's faithful and just, okay? So the New Testament authors use several literary techniques to assert to us the deity of Yeshua. They call God the Father righteous. Now Christ is righteous. They are the same. They share that righteousness because they are God. They are Yahweh. Father, Son, and Spirit. So John returns for a third time to question about the forgiveness of sins. He said in verse 7, the blood of Yeshua, Son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, We confess our sins, He cleanses us. In verse 9, He says, He forgives us our sins. Okay, And now He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua, Christ, the righteous. So not only is Christ a righteous advocate in heaven, but He says He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, some of the older commentators used to render this intensive pronoun here, He and He alone. Because there's an emphasis upon it. He and He alone is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, there's nothing else you can do. There's nowhere else you can go. No one else who can make you right before the Father. He and He alone is our propitiation. Now let's talk about that for a second. Propitiation. Can you give me a definition of that word? 
Okay, well, do what? The appeasement of the wrath of God. Okay, that's, that's close. Propitiation is one of those theological words that you probably don't hear too often in everyday conversation. You know, you sit down with your friend at coffee, you say, you know, I was meditating on the propitiation of Christ the other day. I mean, we should have those conversations, but you just don't. Or someone says to you, hey, I was reading Our Daily Bread, and it was talking about the propitiation, not... Okay, it's not going to be in there, okay, they're not going to go that deep. But it's a word that's, yeah, that's well worth our understanding, okay? This is a word that you as believers should understand. And I think we should understand this because I believe that all people basically are walking around with some sort of plan for propitiation. You know, a lot of people have invented their own plan for this, okay? The big question is whether their plan is the Christian one, because if it's not the Christian one, they're in trouble. To understand propitiation is to understand the gospel. And without it, you don't have a gospel. The Greek word used here is halasmos. Halasmos is used twice in the New Testament, both in 1 John. He's going to use it again in chapter 4. Um, and it means this. The removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. It is the turning of God's wrath away from the sinner by a sacrifice to satisfy God. Now, propitiation is an ancient word, and we as Christians share this in common with a lot of other religions, pagan religions, okay? Propitiation. To propitiate a God is to offer a sacrifice that turns aside that God's wrath. In other words, God is angry. We've got to stop that anger, so we offer a sacrifice to turn away that anger. Now, some critics say that propitiation is strictly a pagan notion. Okay? Hilasmos and its cognate, hilasterion. Hilasterion is used by Paul in Romans. It's used in, in Hebrews also. It's a cognate verb. means the same thing. Um, <clears throat> but they say, you know, that's just... That can't be right, you know, for Christians. I mean, it's used as the act of appeasing the Greek gods by a sacrifice. So, you know, why would we use that for our God? Well, let me give you a little uh, Greek history here. Prince Paris had carried off Princess Helen to Troy. And so the Greek expeditionary force took ship to recover her, but they were held up halfway by persistent and contrary winds. They just weren't getting where they needed to go. So Agamemnon, the Greek general... Sent home for his daughter, girls, sent home for his daughter, and sacrificed her. Hmm. Things aren't going my way, let me kill my kid. All right, maybe, maybe the gods will be happy if I do that. All right, well, he sacrificed his daughter to, you know, mollify the hostile gods. Well, the move paid off, the west winds began to blow, and the fleet reached Troy without further difficulty. Now, this bit of Trojan War legend dates to about 1,000 B.C. And it mirrors an idea of propitiation in which pagan religion all over the world and in every age has been built. They would take a present to their God and try to bribe them. People do that today? Absolutely. God, I'm going to do this. I hope that, you know, one of the big ways, tithing. If I tithe, God will forget everything else I'm doing. and We'll be okay. 
They, they try to turn God's favor toward them by doing something, I'm going to make God happy in some way. In pagan propitiation, the gods need to be propitiated because they're grumpy and they're capricious. Okay, they just, ah, they woke up on the wrong side of bed or whatever. So you've got to somehow make them happy. See, they don't care much about humans, the gods of the pagans. When something makes them angry, that's it. They just want to reach out and smite you, all right? And so it's up to humans to get busy uh, doing propitiation, to do whatever they have to do to stop the anger of the gods. And the humans find something that the gods like. Sometimes it's sweets. They offer sweets on an altar, or sometimes it's meat. Sometimes it's pain. They cut themselves. They do self-mutilation. Sometimes it's blood. Sacrifices. They're offering a bribe to calm down the wrathful deities. Now, because of the negative connotations of turning away a god's wrath by sacrifice, some scholars, C.H. Dodd was one of them, argue that the word propitiation doesn't focus on god's wrath. So he wanted to kind of change this idea of what it meant. It, it focuses rather on man's sin. And thus they translate the word expiation. And a lot of translations have taken propitiation out, put expiation in, and it, which means to blot out the guilt of our sins by making atonement. So they just want to do away with this idea of God's wrath. You know, God is angry. Because, you know, God is just love. Love, love, love. That's how they like it. And... and and they're offended that we would consider God to be a God of anger, and we would think of God in any way like the gods of the pagans, being capricious, being angry. Um, someone that has to be appeased. Who have to, we have to placate by sacrifices. Sometimes even human sacrifices. They read things like, uh, for example, the 17th chapter of 2 Kings 29. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak and Sepharvites and Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Serveum. So they burned their children in the fire. So all these nations coming in, they had their own gods when they got there. And to placate those gods, they burned their children as human sacrifice in an effort to propitiate or satisfy, in other words, angry deity. And there are many who read that and they say, you're not going to make the God of the Bible like that. He's not like that. You're not going to make him the kind of God whose anger has to be appeased by a sacrifice. But see, that's what propitiation means. That's exactly what it means. The alleviation of wrath, we're going to stop wrath, by offering a sacrifice. Let me just throw this in here. There are certain scholars, not a whole lot, few thankfully, that believe that the Bible teaches that Yahweh demanded human sacrifice. Okay? I mean, there's books written from a scholarly perspective. There's peer-reviewed papers out there that, that say, you know, Yahweh in the early days of Israel demanded human sacrifice. And they would use verses like Exodus 13, 1 and 2. Yahweh said to Moses, Consecrate to me the firstborn. Whatever, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and a beast, is mine. And they argue that this is calling for human sacrifice. Okay? <laughs> that Yahweh, back in the early days of Israel, see, they say this changed with the, 
reformation of Josiah. You know, Josiah changes. He did away with this, the adultery and a lot of these practices. So he did away with it. But in the early days, they say that Yahweh demanded human sacrifice. Now, my personal opinion, this is absolute nonsense. Okay, for more reasons than I have time to even explain here right now. But let me ask you this. This is chapter 13 of Exodus, right? And they're saying the Lord's calling for human sacrifice, right? The sacrifice of the firstborn. What happens in chapter 12? What's chapter 12 of Exodus about? No. The Passover. What was the provision of the Passover for? To keep the death angel from killing the firstborn. So, okay, Passover, God gives you a rite of Passover so you can save your firstborn. And then in chapter 13, he says, now in, in light of the fact that you've saved your firstborn, now let's kill him. It's absolutely ridiculous. Okay? And verses 6 through 11 of this chapter give provision, you know, if, if you can't, if you don't want to sacrifice your donkey, here's a provision to do so. It's just, it's absolute nonsense to think that God calls for human sacrifice, but there are people out there who teach that. Okay? Yahweh condemned human sacrifice. The prophets railed against human sacrifice. Listen, Israel did sacrifice human sacrifices, but it was in disobedience to God. The prophets wouldn't have spoke out against it if they weren't doing it, okay? Hey, stop doing something that you're not doing. No, they were doing it. Speaking of Ahaz, king of Judah, Scripture says this, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. According to, now watch this, he burned his son as an offering, right? So you say, well, that's not good, but did Yahweh tell him? Watch. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out. So there were Israelites who practiced human sacrifice, but Yahweh condemned it. It was a despicable practice of the nation. Most people believe it started with the worship of Moloch. And they would sacrifice their children to Moloch. And we know that Israel did this because they were idolatrous. They got away from God. And they were doing this. So, as I said, there's many people who read this thing about God propitiating and they say, no, 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 well, that, that word can't be right. We can't have that. You can't make God the kind of God who's angry and has to be appeased. But again, that's what the word means, okay? One of these people who is arguing against this, we've got to not use that word, it just, it's not a good word, is Stephen Chalk. Anybody ever heard of Stephen Chalk? He's a founder and global leader of Oasis. Oasis is a church in Waterloo, but the, the Oasis is a, it's global. It goes, they have offices all over, and they're basically a community project to help people. I mean, they do a lot of good stuff. Well, Chalk wrote a book in 203 entitled The Lost Message of Jesus. It was published by Grand Rapids and Zottervan. In this book, he caused an outrage in the evangelical world, which I'm glad he did. I mean, I'm glad it caused an outrage that at least the evangelicals were aware something was not right here. He actually asked how we as believers, particularly evangelicals, can, and I quote, come to believe that at the cross, this God of love suddenly decided to vent his anger and wrath on his own son. How can we believe that? Yeah, that might be the first place. Yeah, well, because the Bible says it. Again, we go back to you gotta read your Bible, okay? See, he believes that God should only be displayed as a God of love. Not a God of anger. 
And he considers it to be mockery to say that Jesus taught that God could punish him. It is a contradiction of the statement he says that God is love. See, so many people just hammer down. Listen, God has one attribute, right? He did away with every other attribute. He's just got one, and it's love. No. What about the rest of his attributes? Forget about wrath, justice, anger. No, no, no. We, God, God, that was Old Testament. The new one, he got rid of all that stuff, right? No. God has many attributes, and you can't pick and choose which ones you like. Okay? What we have to understand is that every aspect of biblical propitiation contrasts the pagan kind. Alright, so they say, we can't be like the pagan gods. We're not, God is not like the pagan gods. God requires propitiation, not because He's moody, not because He's easily provoked. He requires propitiation because He's holy, because He's just. Those are His attributes, okay? God responds to sin with absolute consistency. Paul said in Romans 1.18, His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He reveals His wrath because He's holy and He's just. He's not capricious. He didn't get up on the wrong side of bed. In biblical propitiation, according as opposed to the pagan propitiation, it is not humans on their own initiative figuring out what God likes, but God Himself declaring what kind of sacrifice He accepts. And then... Providing it. Here's the sacrifice you need for me, and I'll provide it. Even in the Old Covenant, God takes credit for providing blood of the animals for sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Watch. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. I gave it to you. God provided what He wanted. Also consider what kind of sacrifice brings about biblical propitiation. It's not a bribe or something nice to try to tide him over. In the fullness of time, God fulfills the Old Covenant symbolism by giving His own Son to die for us. Let's look at Romans 3, 24-26. Paul uses hilasterion here. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Okay, grace and gift are the same thing. He's doubling up here, just so you know. This is free, okay? Through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua who God put forth as hilasterion, a propitiation, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in the divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Yeshua. Stifler has written this. The chief question in saving man is not how the man may be accounted just, but how God may remain so in forgiving sins. See, how does a holy God, how does a just God just forgive your sins? That's not just, right? Listen, God could have settled accounts with man by punishing sinners. Right? Every one of them. That would have demonstrated He's just. But Yeshua died so that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. To be righteous and to declare as righteous those who are guilty 
seems like an unrighteous act. But God's righteousness would dictate, pour out your wrath on the guilty sinners. That would be righteous. Punish them. That's what justice is. But if God is going to justify the ungodly, then someone, namely Yeshua, had to bear the wrath of God to show that God is just. And that's why the word propitiation is so important. Okay? Christ bore the wrath of God for our sins. The wrath of God, propitiation, the removal of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. That sacrifice was Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God. So He removed the wrath of God from us. Christ and Christ alone is our propitiation. There's nothing else you can do to alleviate the wrath of God. That is, out of love for the glory of God, Christ absorbs the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. So that it might be plain that when we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption of Christ Yeshua, God is just. He's just in counting as righteous those who trust in Yeshua. Because He punished. Sin was paid for. That was justice. I love this. John Stott summarizes propitiation this way. Okay, Very brief summary. In biblical propitiation, God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. Okay? That is beautiful. And that is beautiful. God gave Himself to save us from Himself. He appeased His wrath through the offering of a sacrifice that He provided. It's important that we understand what biblical propitiation is so we can make sure our plan is a biblical one rather than one of our own devising. See, in the daily life, there's a constant temptation to ignore Christ as our God-given propitiation. Thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people do it every day, and they seek other ways of cutting deals with God. No, Christ, I'm not interested in that way. I'll find another way to God. We'll try to earn His favor. I'll do this, or I'll be a do-gooder. I'll help out the poor. I'll give to the needy. I'll do something. But I want to do it myself. I don't need what Christ has done. And we try to earn His favor. We try to appease His wrath. To give Him something He'll like so He won't smite us. And maybe He'll even reward us with some kind of blessing. As I stressed earlier in the beginning of part of verse 2, stresses He and He alone is the propitiation. There is no other propitiation, people. You're either in Christ, you either trust Christ, or you have no propitiation, and you will bear yourself the wrath of God. Apart from Christ, there's nothing but wrath. He is the propitiation. And then he says this, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the universals are standing and cheering. Yay! Christ propitiates the sin of the whole world. See, we told you, everybody's going to be saved. No. All right, this is not speaking of universalism here, okay? Not at all. Does it mean that, you know, when people will take it that way. That, see, they'll take this and say, see, he's a propitiation for everybody's sin. Everybody's saved. Everybody's going to heaven. Nobody's dying. Nobody really needs the gospel then, right? Everybody's okay. Nobody needs to believe. But yet the Bible says that's the only way you'll get in is by believing. That's right. They, they, everybody's a sheep. No one's a goat. 
Has Yeshua actually satisfied God's justice for everybody who has ever lived? No. He could have. He could have. But if He did, why are there all the warnings in Scripture calling us to faith in Christ if it's already taken care of? And why preach the Gospel? I mean, we're all ending up the same place. Let them do what they want to do, right? Well, let's start dealing with this by looking at the word world because it says whole world there and that means every single person ever lived, right? No. The term world has at least 10 different meanings in Scripture. Some have claimed 13 in the New Testament. And it's used in various ways. To affirm that it means everybody without exception is to beg the question. You need to prove that. You can't just say, well, it means everybody without exception. Okay, prove it. See, the context gives us clues. And there's nothing in this context that suggests he's saying everybody is saved without exception. Let's remember here. Lazarus was an Israelite. Right? In the background of the Israelites, they're very exclusive. Right? God is our God. Right? God loves us. All of, everybody else, you're all going to hell. He just loves us. Okay? It's just us and us alone. They thought God just loved them. Alright? So here the word in context means all without distinction. Not all without exception. And that's a big difference. He likes Jews, but he guess what? He likes Gentiles too. He loves Gentiles. And John has that meaning in several places in his Gospel. The Samaritans say this in John 4.24. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What do they mean? They mean it's not just for you Jews. He's also our Savior. It goes beyond just the Jews. The world. It, and I think understanding what John says here can be best seen when we compare one of his closest parallels in Scripture in John 11, 51 and 52. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation. Alright, the Bible taught that, right? He's going to die for the nation. Who's the nation? It's Israel, right? And watch. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The nation here is Israel, but Christ didn't die just for Israel. He died to gather children, other children abroad. And this is what Yeshua said in John 10. He said, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, get that. He's dying for what? The sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they'll listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Now, if you want to understand what's going on here, you've got to keep in context. You've got to back up to verses 1 through 5, where there the sheep pen represents... Judaism. Yeshua calls his own sheep out of that fold, the fold of Judaism, thereby they're his flock. But the sheep that remain in the pen, they're unbelieving Jews. Now if Yeshua has other sheep that are not of that pen, that are not of Judaism, the reference must be to Gentiles. In other words, there are children of God or sheep scattered throughout the world. And he's going to call his sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. If they're not his sheep, they don't hear his voice. 
And he's gone over that and over that. And he, you know, he, in the Gospel of John, he was so specific about this. You know, the Father has given me a love gift of the elect. And if you're not mine, if the Father hasn't given you to me, you're not coming. You're not hearing. You're not getting any of this. Look at Revelation 5 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God for every tribe and language and people and nation. Christ did not propitiate the wrath of God against everybody, but He laid down His life for the sheep. They are scattered throughout the world in every tongue and tribe and people and nation. It doesn't say that He purchased all people in every group, but some from every group. Yeshua Himself specifically excluded the world from His priestly prayer when He prayed in John 17. He says, I pray not for the world. Wow, that's not very nice. Does He love the world? If He loves it, why didn't He pray for it? He's praying for His own. So when we compare Scripture with Scripture, people, you can't just take one verse and make a doctrine out of it. You've got to fit it in with the rest of Scripture. What does it say? And again, this is Lazarus writing this, who wrote the Gospel. And all through the Gospel, he hammered the fact that nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. They've got to be drawn. You can't come on your own. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we conclude that Christ's death actually satisfied God's wrath for His elect. Alright. Listen to John Owen. You guys familiar with John Owen? This is his great conundrum. A little difficult for 21st century people to read maybe, but I think you'll get the point. Because it's still applicable. He says, for whom did Christ die? And he says this. The Father imposed His wrath due unto, and the Son underwent punishment for either, one, all the sins of all men, two, all the sins of some men, or three, some of the sins of all men, in which cause it may be said, if the last be true, all men have some sins to answer for, and so none are saved. See, if He only paid for some of our sins, who pays for the rest of them? Us? Well, then we're in big trouble. Okay? Because then we're damned. Alright? He goes on to say that if the second be true, that is, that if He died for all the sins of some men, then Christ in their stead suffered for all the sins of all the elect of the whole world. And this is the truth, He says. But if the first be the case, He died for all the sins of all men, Why are not all men free from the punishment due their sins? So if Christ died for everybody, if He paid for all their sins, why do they get punished? Well, then He goes on to say this. You answer, because of unbelief. I ask, is this unbelief sin? Or is it not? And if it be, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it. Or if He did not, if He did, why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died. If he did not, he did not die for all their sins. Okay, did you get that? I mean, it's a little bit, you know, I know the language is a little bit tricky there, but basically he's saying, if Christ died for everyone's sins, why didn't everybody say? And you say, well, because they don't believe. Well, isn't unbelief a sin? If he died for their sins, then he died for unbelief, so they should all be saved. You know, that's his logic. 
<laughs> By saying that Christ is a propitiation for the whole world, John may have intended another, here's a little another option here. He may have intended to counter the heretics who claim that the knowledge of salvation was exclusive and secret. See, they had, a, they had an inside scoop, they believed. They restricted it to the enlightened few. And instead, John throws open the doors to the entire world as if to say, God's grace is far more extensive than you imagine. Christ's sacrifice is not just for the enlightened few. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the entire world. Anyone, anywhere who trusts in Christ's sacrifice for his sin will be saved. Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. It doesn't matter. Now, I also think another twist on this verse, and this is how I've always kind of looked at this verse, is John may be saying here, he's the only propitiation. You know, in other words, he says, he's a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, the whole world doesn't have another propitiation that they use, and we use Christ. He's the only one. They come to Christ, or they have nothing. And that fits with me. That makes sense with me. He's a propitiation for our sins, not ours only, the whole world. They can't go to somebody else and get in the other way, all right? He's the only propitiation there is. There's none other. All right, let me close this morning with a question. How can we, who are sinners in thought, in word, in deed, possibly have fellowship with a God who is light, a holy God? This is what this book's all about, fellowship with God. But how do we do that? I mean, we're sinners, obviously. We know that. You know, we're told not to, but we do. How do we have fellowship with God? The answer is, you ready? I want you to get this, okay? Through the Lord Yeshua's work of propitiation, which He has accomplished on Calvary's cross, it is possible for sinners to have fellowship with the One who is light. It's because of propitiation. That's how we can have fellowship. Now watch this. The light of God itself can discover no sin in us for which the blood is not an absolute remedy. Do you understand that? Let me say it again, because if you understood it, I think you'd be shouting, okay? The light of God itself can discover no sin in us, for which that blood, the blood Christ has shed, is not an absolute remedy. Amen! Amen! There's nothing, nothing, people, that we can do. No sin we can commit. God says, oh, look at that. Oh, that's right, Christ paid for it. It's paid for. Absolutely. 100% paid for. And if you don't think it is, then you're thinking, well, Christ paid for, that's a Catholic doctrine. Christ paid for some. You've got to do the rest. And you know what that's saying to God? What you did is not enough. You put your son to death for us, it just wasn't quite enough. We need to help you out. Human righteousness is what it is. Self-centeredness. It's sickening. In other words, all that the light shows us of our evil, our sin, our wickedness, all of that and more is covered by the blood of Yeshua said, shed on Calvary's cross. Can you say amen? amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I pray that you would help us, enable us by the power of your spirit to grasp the truth of propitiation. That you were angry, Lord, because of our sin. But you devised a way to punish your own son that we might be free. Lord, it's incredible. It's beyond our grasp to comprehend, I think, at times. 
I thank you, Lord, that your wrath was settled at Calvary. You poured your wrath out on your Son, your sinless Son as our substitute. And therefore, we stand before you righteous. Lord, help us to understand who we are in you. Lord, we see our sin day to day and it troubles us and it, it makes us feel out of touch with you. Help us to realize that in our position before you, we are as righteous as Christ. And may that be a motivation, Lord, to live in a godly manner, to honor you, to thank you for what you have done on our behalf. We love you, Lord. Amen.